Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Equipping and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And with me today, I have two uh, great guests and uh, friends, uh, Doug and Holly. Doug and Holly, welcome to – well, Doug, welcome to the show. And Holly, <laughs> welcome back. Uh, can you guys uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you guys do and a little bit of uh, ministry updates and any any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I I've – been on your podcast before and I'm so glad to be back. Thanks for having me back, Dave. I've been looking forward to this. Um, I've uh, been researching the new apostolic reformation movement for over 20 years now. I've co-authored uh, three books with uh, Doug Guyvet about this movement. And we have another fourth one actually forthcoming next, uh, well, this year, later this year. And I, I've blog at hollypivot.com about the new apostolic reformation movement. I, um, I worked at Biola university for nearly a decade as the managing editor of Biola magazine and the university editor there. And, um, I have a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola, but I'm also a pastor's wife and a homeschooling mom. Wonderful. Thank you for your ministry, Holly. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, Dave, it's great to be on the show here with you and with Holly uh, today. Thank you for your invitation. I um, live in Southern California, where I taught for 29 years at Biola University in the Talbot School of Theology, uh, directed the MA program in philosophy there for about 10 years and taught uh, until recently. I've retired and now uh, emeritus professor of philosophy at uh, Talbot School of Theology and Biola University and sort of a free agent at the moment. So uh, this is a great opportunity for, for us to be talking about this most recent book, uh, Counterfeit Kingdom, uh, in relationship to the New Apostolic Reformation. But uh, I also am married, uh, have been for nearly 40 years now. We have two grown daughters, both of them married, but no, we have no grandchildren. And uh, I don't know what else to tell you about myself. Uh, other than that, I enjoy travel quite a bit and uh, uh, people don't have too much trouble guessing which continent I have not yet been to when I say I've been to all but one. Uh, you can probably yeah, exactly. <laughs> so until the uh, the penguins uh, invite uh, to host a conference there I I'm not sure how soon I'll be uh, making up that deficit. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Have you been invited yet to Antarctica Holly? Um, actually, no, just kidding. No. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> I didn't want to tell Doug and make him feel bad. <laughs> oh, man. It's on we, my bucket list. Yeah, yeah. I, I've never been there either, so nobody's invited me. Well, uh, you guys can tell us a little bit about Counterfeit Kingdom, if you like, as well. But uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, these first two books that you guys put together, God's Super Apostles, Encouraging the Worldwide Prophets and Apostle Movement. 
and a new apostolic reformation, a biblical response to uh, the worldwide movement. You know, those have been out for a good while. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about them. Uh, the surprise, any surprises to the response to those books, mm-hmm. and uh, if there's anything that you would change in writing them. You know, those kind of things, since they have been out a while. Well, one thing I'll say is uh, I think you said God's super apostles encouraging the oh, okay. worldwide apostles and prophets movement. It's encountering <laughs> the oh, the oops. worldwide. Uh, I'm, I'm teasing you a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it's okay. I, but, I deserve it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, encountering the worldwide uh, prophets and apostles movement. But um, no, we wrote those books. Um, uh, a new apostolic reformation is is a very in depth examination of the the theology of the movement and provides an overview of the movement and its teachings it's heavily documented and god super apostles is a condensed version of that book and it, it also includes some anecdotes and stories of of people who've been harmed by the movement and some practical advice for people um who've who maybe are coming out of the movement um but um, those books uh, have been very well received. And, at, and since writing them, we've been contacted by people literally from around the world, everywhere, probably except Antarctica, um, <laughs> um, uh, just talking about uh, stories of how they've encountered this movement and, and the ways it's um, they've experienced harm, the, the way the teachings have impact harm their churches split churches or or, or um, cause division in their families or um all the different ways that um that people have been harmed by this movement and so um and so and then our newer book counterfeit kingdom which just came out in november uh that book really focuses on the uh practices of this movement so whereas the previous books were really looked at the theology the newer book does address the theology, but it, it really focuses on the practices and the, the practical ways that you'll see the NAR movement showing up in churches and ministries and in music. Doug, do you have anything you want to add to that? No, that's a great uh, review of the relationship between the three books so far. We have a another book forthcoming that's been mentioned uh, later this year. And uh, that one too is going to focus more on the theological side of things. This book, Counterfeit Kingdom, that we're talking about today, the recent book, is uh, really focusing on these practical aspects of the movement so that people can recognize it. Many people do not know uh, the New Apostolic Reformation by that name, and that's not terribly surprising, but there are things that are going on around us in our church experiences and and uh, through our interaction with other Christians, uh, not only in this country, but globally, that uh, reflect the influence of this movement, the New Apostolic Reformation. And so these books are, are designed to help people become more aware of their surroundings and ways that uh, they're being impacted uh, directly or indirectly by what's happening in the movement. Mm. Do you want to maybe touch on a few of those? Maybe people aren't as familiar with that. You know, there are people out there that don't know what to look for when it comes to, you know, their church has been infiltrated by the NAR. What, what are, what are maybe, what are some signs of that and those kind of things, Doug? Yeah. Well, 
oftentimes people will say, well, what, who, for example, is involved? Who are the leaders? Who are the names that I should be aware of? And um, if we mention uh, the influence of Bethel Church in Redding, California, my home state, uh, and uh, B- Bill Johnson, who's the senior minister there, but also is the apostle in the church, and uh, then his wingman, who is the prophet, is uh, Chris Valentine. And uh, they together have uh, probably done the most of any two people uh, to disseminate the views and the teachings and the practices of the New Apostolic Reformation because of the scope of their ministry. But it is, there are many outlets for it. Uh, But probably the best known outlet that will be familiar to the most people uh, watching this uh, interview would be through Bethel Music and other labels, music labels that are producing music uh, from this point of view with a theology that grows out of this new apostolic reformation. Yeah, that that's, oh, go ahead, Holly, sorry. Oh yeah, no, that's true. And I was just going to say the core teaching of this movement, and, and I, I talked about this in our last podcast, but is that apostles and prophets are supposed to govern the church and hold these formal hierarchical governing offices and all other leaders and are supposed to submit to them, even pastors and elders. And so that's something for people to watch out for. If there's talk of apostles and prophets governing the church, um, you know, and then there's a lot of buzzwords people can listen for things like apostolic or prophetic, um, fivefold ministry, is the name of the 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 core teaching that that God has given five offices to govern the church: apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And they would say two of those offices, apostles and prophets, have been missing uh, through the centuries and have, are now being restored. And so, so fivefold ministry is a term to watch out for. Um, and then there's a number of NAR practices people that might clue people in of NAR influence. So sozo. Is there inner healing in a deliverance ministry at Bethel that's very that's been popularized and spread throughout the world? Twenty four seven prayer and worship practices associated with the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. So there's a lot of different practices and and buzzwords and things like that 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 we talk about in our books. That once people become clued into, they can start recognizing the signs of of this influence coming into their own churches. Yeah, and, yeah, I and think we find a... that uh, – oh, oh, I didn't mean to talk over you, Dave. No, no, no. I was go just going to add to that, that uh, we find that people who have read the books and then correspond with us oftentimes will have questions about a particular group or an indi- a figure. And and they'll say, well, you know, now I'm wondering, is, is this organization or is this church influenced by NAR? And they describe things. And we find that their intuitions are very good now. They've been shaped by the little bit of reading that they've done that's helped them tune into these things. And quite often, I'd say most often, they are pretty accurate and able to pinpoint uh, for themselves. Their, their suspicions are correct when they uh, communicate with us about what they're observing. Yeah. I think what you guys were just mentioning is so important because I think for the average person, they're just coming in, they're learning about these things and reading, uh, you know, the first two books, uh, which I, I read them out of order. Uh, so there was that. But the thing that was really shocking, I don't think people would know too much about is that the that pastors are actually submitting to, you know, the apostle and then to the prophet, which as a Baptist, I find that extremely concerning. 
Um, so the the question I think that that we need to ask is how concerned should Christians be about the NAR view of the local church leadership? I mean, biblically qualified pastors and elders submitting to apostolic networks. Well, I think they should be quite concerned, uh, partly because the apostles are at the top of the chain in terms of authority and influence and leadership. And uh, it's expected that you would defer to them and align yourself with their uh, guidance in their instruction, even if it's gentle instruction, it is meant to be taken seriously and and basically submission is expected because after all, they have that unique authority as apostles and uh, as spokespersons for God, they may even receive special divine revelation concerning your circumstances. And uh, that might be something you don't have direct access to like they do. Now, maybe uh, there's some chance that through their ministry, uh, your capacity for prophetic ministry would be activated, but it still comes through them and through their through their leadership and under their guidance. So you have to ask, well, then what are their credentials? And, you know, the scriptures do give us instruction about leadership and who qualifies for leadership and what credentials they should have, what qualifications they should have, what conditions they should meet if they want to be pastors or elders or teachers even. There are indicators in scripture. But what uh, credentials must you bear and be able to demonstrate if you claim to be an apostle? Now, uh, the original apostles, the 12, Jesus' own apostles, uh, they had pretty clear credentials. Uh, They had walked with Jesus, known Jesus, been eyewitnesses of his ministry and of his resurrection. That is to say, they, they encountered him after his resurrection, not that they were at the tomb when it happened. And uh, this was expected when uh, one of them needed to be replaced, namely Judas Iscariot. And so in Acts chapter 1, they select one man from two candidates uh, to be his replacement. That ended up being Matthias. But one requirement was that he met those conditions. There were pretty clear credentials. Of course, they needed to be disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. It wasn't just enough to have known Jesus during his lifetime. So. Usually, when we uh, are expected to follow the leader, we have some idea what requirements uh, have been met by that leader to qualify for that role. But unfortunately, today's apostles, the ones that we're talking about, generally uh, cannot say much about what their own credentials are other than to say that they have received some kind of personal commission from God that nobody else was present to observe. Yeah. Ahead, and so oh, then no, I was just agreeing. <laughs> I thought that was well said. Yeah, that's that's really I think it, that's that really gets to the to the heart of the issue. They haven't seen Christ and they don't meet the biblical criteria. And so they shouldn't be accepted as apostles. Well, unless they can they can demonstrate. But, uh, you know, right, what right. what can they do and what do they do to support their claim Uh, to be apostles, that they were recognized as such by others uh, of their contemporaries, others in their ministerial circle, that's probably not sufficient either. Now, you know, if I want to teach at a university, I have to produce credentials. Uh, So I have a PhD in my field, and that's the appropriate degree, terminal degree for being qualified, minimally qualified to teach. And for any role that we play in society, there are generally certain expectations. But it's uh, amazing how uh, light 
the expectations are for someone who claims to be an apostle who, as I said earlier, is at the top of the chain in terms of authority and influence. And one thing I would say is people should know is that these apostles don't always explicitly say, you must submit to me, you know, or, or else. Um, they often use euphemisms um, because they know it's controversial to, to demand that everyone submit to them, right? And so they use terms like align, that you're supposed to align with them. And then by aligning with them, you'll come under their spiritual covering and then you'll receive the the spiritual blessings and the protection and uh, that that are are associated with uh, coming under the spiritual covering. Um, and so and so sometimes people will challenge us and they'll say, well, you know, they didn't directly say you must submit to me. Well, sometimes they do say that in their literature and we actually quote them. We in, in our in our book, in our books, um, showing that they do actually call for submission. But since they don't always say that, since they use these euphemisms, uh, sometimes um, people need to be aware of these euphemisms and what what what's behind them, what the teachings are behind them. Or they might prefer that you call them uh, your spiritual father or mother. And mm -hmm. uh, and then you function in 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 relation to them like like children in a family. And maybe you can grow up to be father or mother to someone else, but uh, <clears throat> they that's clearly there's a there's a kind of almost pecking order, right? There's a leadership role, but it's not just leadership, it's also responsibility and <clears throat> and and you're accountable to them. And also, um, like I said, if you're receiving revelations from them, say for the church or about your own personal circumstances or what have you, or you're learning from them what God has revealed to them about the mission of the church in the world today and how to do church, then that already sets up functionally a kind of uh, role for them that you would submit to or you're out of the picture or you don't experience the blessings that they offer. So you don't have to use the language of submission to communicate the functional equivalence of submission. And yet they do in, indeed use that language oftentimes. Mm. And I think that uh, you guys discuss the matter of, you know, church abuse and spiritual abuse. I think that just funnels into that because if you have that view of yourself, I mean, and you're asserting that role, especially mm. over pastors in the local church, I think it would just lead to, to that kind of mm -hmm. spiritual abuse and hurt and harm that, uh, you know, that so many in that movement and even people that that are, they're not in that kind of church, they just in the local church, they've experienced that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people have shared stories with us of being afraid to to leave the spiritual covering of of the apostle and what that would what that would mean for them if, if that happened. So there's real psychological and spiritual pressure on people to stay under the covering, even though. You know, the apostles themselves will say, well, people are always free to leave. Nobody's, you know, make holding a gun to their head or making them stay here. But but the pressure is is in the teachings that what happened, they have fear that if they leave the covering, they're going to lose blessings, protection. They could lose healing, uh, physical healing that they believe or um, so there's real fear associated with leaving the covering of an apostle. Right. So there's an underlying subtext in the message, which is one of threat. 
And in fact, uh, this is one of my biggest concerns for people in the movement uh, who are not, especially if they're not in leadership, is uh, that even without knowing it, you could be shadowed all the time by these these subliminal fears about, you know, am I doing things right? Uh, should I be questioning their leadership? Uh, is it safe to ask this question? Uh, if, you know, when when Doug and Holly say that we should ask for their credentials and give us reasons to believe that these people are genuine prophets and apostles, am I going to be in trouble if I ask for those? If I if I demand evidence uh, of these things, I think people are more prone to believe that these claims are are being made simply because of the nature of the claim and the presumed authority. There's a bearing that these people have that they project authority, and people just understand in the context, the social context, that, uh, you know, there are limits to what you're free to ask and expect them to supply. And I think this goes to questions about miracles as well. So many people will will report that miracles are happening uh, to a much greater degree than they're able to substantiate. And so there's a there is a mythology that grows up around the ministry of the church or the organization led by NAR apostles and prophets that supernatural signs and wonders are taking place when uh, that might just be uh, kind of more an expression of expectation and, and hope and aspiration than it is of, of reality. Yeah, it's really good. You, you guys were talking about the the Bethel and a lot of people have a lot of questions. I, I know you guys know that about Bethel music. And so why, why shouldn't Christians sing Bethel music besides not having their money to go to support the ministry of Bethel? Well, uh, for one thing, and we have a whole chapter about the music, the NAR music in our book, not just Bethel, but other music from other NAR influenced churches as well, such as Forerunner Music, which is from uh, the label for the International House of Prayer in Kansas City or Jesus Culture, uh, which came out of Bethel Church. Um, but um, the music, a number of songs, many of the songs, their lyrics, uh, the theology is is in the lyrics, but people don't see it necessarily because they don't know the buzzwords and they don't know the theology necessarily. And so once you you learn the theology, you learn what NAR teaches and you learn the the buzzwords that they use, you'll start seeing it in the music a lot. And we hear that from people who've read our book now. They'll say, oh, yeah, I'm seeing this in the music where I didn't see it before. Um but on top of that, even the songs, which um, seem to be generally sound and maybe they don't have the buzzwords, um, uh, when they're produced uh, by a place like like Bethel and then they're used in a church, so many churches are using Bethel music today. Uh, many people have told us that they were first drawn to Bethel Church or drawn to the NAR because of the music. And, um, and so it's really, it's like some, a lot, people have said it's a gateway drug, the, the music, you know, into NAR because people just really like the music. And then they start researching Bethel church or, or next thing, you know, they're attending a conference, they're, they're reading the books, you know, and, and they're drawn into the teachings. And so there's, there's the concern that there is the theology and the music. And on top of it, that, that the music, when it's being used by churches that are otherwise sound is drawing people into NAR. Yes. And it's intentional. Uh, you know, the, the language that's used is often intentionally vague, ambiguous, or euphemistic. 
Now, when I say vague, you don't know what it means. You don't exactly know what the precise sense of the, of the language is. When I say ambiguous, it could be used in more than one way. It's language that could mean one thing or another thing. Is it A or is it B? When I say that it's euphemistic, I mean that it is it is language that uh, disguises a teaching that might seem kind of shocking or odd, at least, uh, if just described in a very straightforward way. But if you use a euphemism, then it sounds like safe language, and it might even be language that you're familiar with, but it doesn't have the meaning that you think it does. And this is intentional. In fact, the whole idea of using music to persuade people to believe something they do not yet believe is explicitly exploited by people in this movement. Bill Johnson himself, the, the lead pastor, the apostle at Bethel Church, says this. We, we quote him in our book. He says, music bypasses all of the intellectual barriers. And when the anointing of God is on a song, notice the language, which he believes it is in the case of Bethel music, people will begin to believe things they wouldn't believe through teaching. And yet, that's when people have their belief guards down, is when they're singing the songs. Uh, we say in this chapter that about music, that music has become the catechism of the church for so many people. It's the, it's the same things that they hear repeated over and over again that are expressing what purports to be truth and um, an expression of God's design for the world. And uh, when they hear it repeatedly and they go home singing the same songs and they play them on their uh, devices and so forth, or they go to concerts or what have, have you, that's the constant drumbeat. And Bill Johnson understands that. And he knows that that could be far more effective in teaching people who would not be receptive if you just spoke plainly and tried to establish from scripture that this is true. But you can extract it from that context embedded in your music, and then you can use the psychology that play, that is at work when we're singing. So what we have to do is we have to be very thoughtful about the words that we sing and ask ourselves, do I understand what this means? And do I believe it? Do I have good reason to believe that it's true? And if not, then, then why am I singing this is, is the next question. And so we're encouraging people to um, use those kinds of questions to examine the music for themselves. But you really need to have some help in the background of the theology. And we try to provide that in other chapters in the book. <clears throat> That's really good. And this is not the fault of, of people that are in the pews or in the, in the benches or at, in their chairs or standing in a congregation singing, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the difficulty of discerning is a function of the cleverness of the composers and the 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 people who are manufacturing this music. So uh, it you know people should not feel like there's something wrong with them if they're not seeing it immediately uh, when it's it's actually being passed off in a kind of disguised fashion so that it's not as plain until you've, you've uh, heard a little bit more about what the teachings are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Really good. 
what is the seven mountain mandate and how do you balance the seven mountain mandate over and against other end times uh, views out there? So the seven mountain mandate is a revelation that a number of prophets in the new apostolic reformation claim that they've received as like a strategy that God has given the church to bring God's physical kingdom to earth. So in NAR, you have to realize that they've um, really, they've said it's the task of the church to bring God's physical kingdom to earth to whatever degree that's possible before Christ returns. And they will have, NAR leaders will have differences of opinion as to how much of God's kingdom might be able to be brought to earth before God's return. Um, But the goal is as much as possible. And, um, and the way they believe, uh, so, so it's a dominionist movement because it's trying to bring God's kingdom to earth, uh, prior to Christ's return. And, and it's, it's doing so by saying that apostles and prophets are giving strategies that, uh, will enable Christians to develop miraculous powers and to wage this high level spiritual warfare, uh, and, and through that to bring God's kingdom to earth. And so that's what sets um, NAR apart. And so people who are NAR leaders are many will claim to be either post-millennialist, uh, meaning that that they're working to bring God's kingdom to earth prior to his return. Um, some claim to be pre-millennialist, like Mike Bickle at the International House of Prayer. Um, some claim to be all-millennialist. But but the thing that they all have in common is they have this view they call victorious eschatology. And it's the idea that the church is going to be this victorious, overcoming in time church that under the apostles and prophets, under their authority and by enacting their strategies, um, they're working to bring God's kingdom to earth, whatever to whatever degree that's possible prior to Christ's return. And so um, it's not like post-millennialism, like classic post-millennialism, classic post-millennialists like John Edwards and people like that, you know, believed that they were working to bring God's kingdom to earth. And, but they were doing that through like the preaching of the gospel. Um, And in NAR, they're working to bring God's kingdom to earth, um, believing that it has to be done under the authority of apostles and prophets who are giving strategies for all Christians to develop miraculous powers um, so that every Christian can heal the sick, prophesy, raise the dead, that kind of thing. Um, so, so there's a big difference even between classic post-millennialism and um, the NAR variety of post-millennialism. And the marks of the kingdom, marks of the arrival of the kingdom are signs and wonders performed by rank and file mm-hmm. believers Mm-hmm. And who've been activated in these powers by people who have the authority to do that. And, uh, and of course, that's the gospel of the kingdom, which is a different message than the pure gospel that we talk about when we talk about human rebellion in the heart, sin, the need for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, who uh, took upon himself the penalty of human sin. So, uh, it's a bit of a distraction, even if they want to say, oh, yeah, all of the above, that's true. But, you know, the gospel of the kingdom includes this, that, and the other thing. Uh, also, um, the Seven Mountain Mandate refers to the sever- several sectors of society, namely seven, that they identify that are supposed to come under this influence. And we're supposed to see this manifestation across the board. And so the dominion is reflected as. Um, God's kingdom emerges 
in these several sectors, whether it's business, politics, education, entertainment, the church, or what have you, the family. So uh, that's the reason. That's the reason for the language Seven Mountain Mandate. But it's a mandate. It's it's the marching orders for the church uh, to get this to happen. And it's a it's a revelation of the kingdom of heaven on earth through this apostolic prophetic ministry. You were just mentioning. That. Uh, I didn't interrupt you, did I, Holly? Mm-hmm. No. Oh, okay. Oh, Holly. Mm-hmm. Holly, did I interrupt you? Sorry. Oh, no, no, you didn't. Okay, <laughs> good, good, good. You know, Doug, I think that that is really, really good. And I think one of the most alarming things is I read, especially uh, the the New Apostolic Reformation, a biblical response to a worldwide movement, it is how the NAR is infiltrating, you know, our, our government Um you know, I know these these books, these the the first two books have been written a while ago. Maybe you guys could share a little bit about how the NAR aims to infiltrate and influence the government at every level of society to advance its agenda for those who may not know how that's happening. Well, that is a big part of it. That is one of the sectors or one of the mountains in the Seven Mountain Mandate is government. And uh, there are indicators that they've been busy, you know, um, aligning themselves or bringing other, you know, government officials or or hopefuls, government hopefuls, governing hopefuls um, into alignment with them. And so they are constantly scanning the horizon, looking for good candidates among those who are running for office. And ideally, these would be Christian people, but they don't have to be Christian people with a, an impeccable testimony. They could be people like well, like Donald Trump, for example, who has a very mixed reputation uh, with respect to a, a whole host of things. But he was regarded, widely regarded by many uh, within the movement as the man of the hour who would help to usher in uh, the kingdom uh, through various policies that he was promoting. And uh, it struck a nerve when he, uh, you know, began to respond. Uh, I mean, he was saying the things that they wanted to hear. Now, um, we don't say a lot in our books about the governing side of this. Uh, We've had other other fish to fry and and we focused on other things. Uh, We think that when people can sort of get clear about the the fundamentals, the basics and and the practices that are pervasive regardless of the sector of society, that they'll be able to recognize the manifestations of these things in whatever uh, form they take, including at the governing level. One thing I've noticed, I think, is that uh, whereas they will talk uh, in, in victorious eschatology language or tones uh, about the future of America and how it's secure along these lines if you vote for this candidate or that candidate, and they use a lot of biblical language and other terminology that's part of their glossary of terms. Um, they're very short on policy, so it's not like um, they've rolled out a policy agenda where, or a plan or a program for actually transforming society politically so that they then uh, say to the candidates that they support, you know, we expect you to do these things. Um, it's a lot more informal and, and less organized than that, but they will organize events where they can have choice candidates speak and um, – and oftentimes these these look like uh, campfire rallies uh, to some people. And of course, um, some in the in the secular media are 
suspicious about uh, what these people are up to, and they can feel like there's some kind of conspiracy at work. And uh, there's no question that that some people are are strategizing and seeking to get certain people in place to exercise political leadership along these broad goals. But the goals themselves are not very well stated. They're not very plainly stated. They're just in very vague and metaphorical terms oftentimes, and very seldom are they accompanied by a clear agenda. And so I think that maybe um, there's a bit of uh, a overreaction to the potential that the, these groups do have. But another feature of this is that uh, prophets play a role in predicting what God will reporting what God has revealed is going to happen in elections, for example. And uh, this is something we have focused on on our book because we have a chapter on prophecy among our leaders and uh, the failed track record they have, for example, in predicting that Donald Trump would win, win re-election in 2020, which, of course, he did not. And uh, and, and so we think that's a, a huge um, indicator of a serious vulnerability within the new apostolic reformation. And uh, that's just happens to be connected with the political sphere. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um, how has the NAR partnered with Christian media and how has that led to the mainstreaming of the new apostolic reformation in the church today? So um, charisma is a very, uh, high profile, um, online like magazine and, and website, um, that, uh, many charismatics in particular, uh, follow and, um, charisma has really, um, published a lot of articles and, and done a lot of promotion actually for the prophets and apostles in this movement, um, publishing their prophetic words, um, you know, sharing videos of them, this type of thing. Um, and even people on leadership with charisma have have been, um, you know, uh, really uh, part of Wagner's like uh, International Coalition of Apostles and things like that. So so even people at high levels of, of leadership editors and, and things like that at charisma have been um, have been part of this movement. Um, you have Destiny Image, which is just pumping out books. It's it's basically a publisher for the New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, they publish all Bill Johnson's books and and um, many more books by apostles and prophets in this movement. Um, so I would say it, it's almost exclusively. It seems like a publisher of of uh, for leaders in this movement. But um, pretty much any book by a well known leader in this movement, it seems like, is almost published by destiny image. Um, although there are some mainstream publishers, uh, evangelical publishers that, um, have been publishing some, um, books by leaders in this movement as well. You have God TV, which is basically a NAR, um, global television network. It, it disseminates, uh, the, um, the messages, you know, the sermons, the messages, the revivals, it, it airs all these things globally. Um, and then you have some television programs that are very um, kind of popular within the NAR, like Sid Roth. He uh, often interviews uh, apostles and prophets in this movement and, and promotes them. Um, people like Brian Simmons, you know, he's interviewed who produced the Passion Translation of the Bible. I think we talked about that maybe during our last podcast. Um, 
So, so there are a lot of different uh, media outlets that are really um, disseminating the, the teachings of this movement. The things that would concern me even more, maybe, though, are when you have like the more mainstream evangelical publishers, you know, who would be publishing these apostles and prophets, because then it's crossing over from something where you would expect, you know, you expect Destiny Image to publish these these people. But, you know, some of these other publishers, um, you wouldn't expect that. And, and that's almost more dangerous, I think, because people feel like, well, if this respected publisher will publish their book, they must be OK. How do you guys stay focused on critiquing the NAR movement while not alienating anyone in either the charismatic or the cessationist conversation? Right. So uh, there are charismatics and Pentecostals, of course. Uh, whose theology of the Holy Spirit might overlap with some of the things that you find in uh, NAR teaching. Not everything that NAR teaches is um, aberrant or uh, runs far afield from what Pentecostals or Charismatics might teach. But we're talking about the things that are extreme and that uh, separate them from those mainstream movements. And in fact, there are many in the Pentecostal churches, the Assemblies of God Church, for example, and among Charismatics, who are quite concerned about the effect that uh, NAR has had in some of their own churches, uh, causing division or splitting off from their their movements. And um, we note in our first book, A New Apostolic Reformation from a few years ago, uh, some of the publications that came out, official publications that came out from the Assemblies of God Church, just as an example of the effort they made to plainly distinguish themselves from, from NAR. And uh, when you look at the specifics, you can see them. They're, they're very stark. The differences are quite real. And um, we just saw recently um, a Pentecostal pastor who was urging his colleagues uh, in the ministry to uh, read this book, Counterfeit Kingdom, because it has effectively drawn attention to what establishes this major difference between NAR and Pentecostalism. And we could say the same thing about the charismatic movement. You mentioned the debate between continuationists and cessationists. That's a debate about whether what some call the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in operation today or not. And uh, of course, in NAR, the, they believe that these gifts still are in operation, and in that they're, they're um, on the same page as Charismatics and Pentecostals, to be sure. But they, they say other things that distinguish themselves with regard to the gifts. And in fact, when they speak of, of uh, apostles and prophets, they prefer to regard these as offices rather than as gifts. Uh, sometimes they use the language of office and gift interchangeably, but functionally, whether they use the language of office or not, it means something more than just a special kind of giftedness, but it's an office that a person can uh, uh, occupy within the church and uh, together with that exercise the authority that goes with that role that you wouldn't have if it was a, shall we say, a mere gift. Uh there's something less uh, compelling about having the gift of prophecy uh, if you are a prophet in the virtually in the same sense that an Old Testament prophet was or even a New Testament prophet was. So um, 
these are significant differences, and we always uh, emphasize uh, this difference. And so we don't uh, we don't uh, our, our our critique of NAR does not depend on adopting a certain view about the mir- miraculous gifts of the Spirit or any of the gifts. Uh, or on uh, whether continuationism is true or cessationism is true. In fact, our critique is compatible with either of those two major positions. Yeah, because of that, we've had uh, many Pentecostals, many Charismatics um, tell us that they really appreciate our our books and that you know they share our concerns and and they're working within their own churches to try to. Um, you know, combat uh, this this NAR influence that's creeping in to so many of their churches. And of course, it, it, there is a certain vulnerability there because so much of the same language is used mm-hmm. uh, by NAR, but then it gets invested. And many people in NAR have come up through the ranks in charismatic or Pentecostal churches themselves. And so they know the language, they know the culture, and I think they they do exploit that to the best of their ability in order to, I think, keep things a little bit more blurred around the edges. Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah, actually, they'll go into, so apostles and prophets will be invited into, like, say, a Pentecostal church, like an Assemblies of God church. Assemblies of God is the largest Pentecostal denomination, right? And so... Pass, an Assemblies of God pastor might invite an apostle to come in and speak to his church, and the apostle will use that platform to disparage denominations, because in our denominations are are often referred to as like they're part of Babylon, that, you know, their um, denominations are bad. They don't want people to be part of denominations because, uh, you know, uh, denominations are governed democratically. Um you know, they're not an apostle at the top. They want people to to come under their authority. And in order for that to happen, they have to leave in a denomination. And mm-hmm. so they'll they'll go into the very church, denominational churches they're invited into to disparage denominations. And so pastors need to be aware of that when they're inviting these apostles and prophets in to speak into their denominational churches, that they're actually undermining, you know, their their own their own church, their own denomination when when they do that and and people will leave the denomination to come under the apostle. That's really good. That's an excellent or, or, point. Or the church. The church will just decide to break off from the denomination. And there are other things that our churches are doing that are <clears throat> are self-defeating. I think that uh, the music is an example. You know, most people who watch this interview will have heard a Bethel song, maybe heard it repeatedly on Sundays in their own churches and been singing them themselves without realizing the connection with NAR that they are, that they have. And uh, this is another one of those ironies is that, you know, you asked earlier, well, what are some of the reasons why you would be concerned about the music? And Holly mentioned a number of very important points. And one of my great concerns is that what you're doing when you when you uh, promote the music and all you have to do is sing it and 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 have it in the lineup uh, during congregational worship. Um, when you do that, you're you're promoting the theology, and you're encouraging people to look for the source, and that source is Bethel Church. In the case of Bethel music, there are other labels, like I said, but. 
Uh, and then people do that. We know that people are doing that. Many people tell us that their entree into NAR and into the Bethel, the ambit of Bethel, the Bethel movement and ministry movement was through the music. And it could be from the remotest parts of the earth uh, that this is happening. And, and we know that this is happening through testimonials. Um, <clears throat> well, what does this mean when... NAR churches and organizations are trying to get people to wake up to the deadness of their own churches and wake up to the vitality and the spiritual um, energy at work in their own churches. And if, you're, if, if your pastor in your church countenances the use of, of this propaganda material through music, uh, then it's self-defeating because basically that's an invitation to compare apples and oranges. And you might like the taste of the apples across town or the country or on the other side of the world uh, in Redding, California, than you do the oranges that you've grown up with in your local congregation. And um, this is another problem is how ministries are evaluated uh, for evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God and the work of God in the lives of people. And um, <clears throat> with their conception of the gospel of the kingdom, the New Apostolic Reformation is offering people the wrong criteria and the wrong standards for evaluating a work of God, we believe, uh, which should be measured in terms of transformation of life evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, the operation of all the gifts as sovereignly distributed by the Holy Spirit, uh, and so on and so forth, and certainly the accuracy of the preaching, and that's another issue that we have with NAR, is how the scriptures are so often distorted in the teaching. Hmm. Really good. Yeah, you know, everybody, I think the thing that people taking it need to understand is that everybody is a theologian as rc sproul once said the question <laughs> is is whether you're a good one or a bad one and understanding the the badness of the theology actually helps you to to address it and to become a good theologian mm -hmm. so i mean the reason yeah, that I, you got mm -hmm. yeah the reason that i appreciate what you guys do mm -hmm. it's it's for that because you're showing hey here's the here's the bad theology and here's the good theology here's the you know the how evangelical christians understand it from scripture you know and and that's really really important yeah you know we get criticized for called heresy hunters and these kind of things i received a letter from someone recently that said you know it was because i started researching nar that's what dove made me do a deep dive into learning about the history of the church and the confessions of the faith and just learning all this theology and she's just come alive she said because she's you know she's she's just because of learning about this error that has driven her to to just learn about all the truth and and the beauty of the christian faith and and so um so it, it's a good thing if people you know are are warned about this error and then because of that uh in contrast they want to go really learn learn the truth and and really learn theology mm -hmm. and now she's she's using that to equip her church she's teaching classes she's teaching I think she said children's classes and and all all different kinds of things where she's trying to teach sound theology to children now all because she became aware of the dangers of NAR and the light went on and and now she wants to learn everything she can about the truth of our faith 
Mm. And growth in <clears throat> growth in sound theology begins with personal Bible study. And uh, we've got, you know, it's, it doesn't begin with reading our book. It, it, it begins with uh, <clears throat> the Word of God. And if you, we, we, <laughs> we are happy to be corrected by anyone with a knowledge of Scripture in anything that we say or teach. That is the authority that we point people to. And uh, fortunately, people in the movement, generally people that are drawn to NAR for various reasons, also have a high regard for Scripture. And that is the saving grace for those people, because if they will then study the scriptures, read the Bible, and when I say study, I mean do more than just read and then <clears throat> test their intuitions and their impressions, their subjective impressions about what it means, but learn how to read the Bible so that you can extract the objective truths that are there for our edification and for our instruction, and yes, for our correction. Correcting our intuitions and cor correcting our gut impressions uh, with truth. Then I think uh, we're happy for people to do that because we think then their eyes will be opened to a misrepresentation of of what the the, the Bible says. And uh, and so <clears throat> in many uh, places in our various books, we'll draw attention to what Nar will say the Bible teaches on some point. And then we'll give a, a fuller exposition of that within the context of the passage, the book, the whole Bible, and help people see that that's not quite right. And I think people learn from this on their own that uh, there is an objective standard, publicly available objective standard they can use to test the truth like the Bereans did in the book of Acts when Paul came to town. And uh, was teaching them things that they weren't sure about. They tested against their knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, which were the scriptures available to them at the time. And that's what we're encouraging people to do. And we find so many people testify to the effect that scripture has had in the transformation of their thinking about these things that we're talking about today. Mm, really good. Where can people go to find you guys on social media or otherwise? Mm -hmm. My uh, website uh, and blog is uh, hollypivic.com. So that's a really good place. Um, I'm also very active on Facebook and Instagram um, and Twitter as well. Now I have a Twitter account, a Facebook account as well. I have an Instagram account, but I don't know what it's for, actually. <laughs> I don't use it much, and Holly's <laughs> working with me on that. But uh, I have a... Uh, I also have a blog. I'm not quite as up to date on it as Holly is these days. Holly's is it, Holly's website is a fantastic resource for constant uh, updating on things going on in relationship to NAR. My website is much broader. I do things in Christian apologetics and uh, theology and and uh, Christianity and politics. When I get around to it, I do just a, a variety of things. So I wouldn't say go to my website for just a steady diet of information about NAR. Uh, Holly's is, is the place to go for that. It is the uh, first place to go, I would say. Um, but my, my blog is uh, DougGuyvett.com. Wonderful. Well, guys, as, as we wrap up, this conversation, there's so much to talk about. We didn't get to everything, but I think we hit up quite a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, do you guys have any takeaways for those who listen and watch the show? Um, and, and what are they? 
Well, I will just say one thing uh, I, I, I like to say during the interviews is if um, we brought up something today and your listeners don't feel like we uh, fully addressed that point, uh, maybe there's particular passages of scripture we didn't address or something like that, I really encourage them to go look at our books, Counterfeit Kingdom or our previous books. Um, because we really go into much more depth into all of these topics and many more in our books. And so we can't possibly, you know, provide all the scriptural support and everything for everything we we said now or all the evidence uh, we have. There's much more in our books for people to go take a look at um, before they decide, you know, that that they disagree with us. <laughs> yes. And, and we do uh, document we quote extensively and we reference the literature and sermons and YouTube videos produced by people leading the NAR movement. And so we've done everything we can to give people access to the sources that we've used to expose the movement. And uh, just final words from myself, I would say that uh, people have nothing to lose, even if they're drawn to the movement, even if they're uh, pleased with the music and they think that it has uh, fostered deeper intimacy with God or they've been to Bethel and back or uh, they've witnessed miracles or what have you. Uh, people have nothing to lose to hear what uh, Christian leaders are saying about the movement and and compare it with the results that you've experienced and so forth and, and draw your own conclusions. We encourage that. But we also know that people that come out of the movement oftentimes have a difficult way of getting their, the, their feet on the ground um, and finding their way into churches where they, they feel at home and, and it's like familiar because the experience culturally is quite different if you're part of this movement. And uh, you feel you can feel like you're at risk of missing out on blessing if you leave the covering of an apostle and a, and a, and a prophet. Uh, you you do lose your circle of friends. Sometimes they won't speak to you anymore, or they will regard you in a very different way, like you've transgressed some some important um, moral ground, mm. uh, or you just you you just don't feel like uh, people are are speaking your language anymore. We've had people say, "It seems to me that G I, I might have been worshiping." A false Jesus. I, I remember one person telling us that uh, because my understanding of who Jesus is and how he relates to us changed so much once I became aware of these teachings and what was wrong with them. And so that was a big adjustment for them. It was almost like a, a, a conversion experience for that person to meet Jesus in a different way through the Gospels and through personal study. Um, and not hearing the same refrains over and over again said about Jesus that could not be substantiated from Scripture. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a message there for people that come out of the movement that um, we understand that it can be difficult and you have to be patient with yourself and with the church that maybe doesn't understand the experience that you've come out of. And, uh, and yet we also want to encourage those who are receiving people like that into their fellowship to be understanding and flexible and, and, and seek to learn from the experiences that these people have had and, and uh, have awakened to um, a, a different sense of the vibrancy and energy of the spirit in the church today. 
That's really well said, Doug and Holly. Thank you so much for your guys' time. You guys are welcome on this show anytime, guys. Mm-hmm. I want to say that. And thank you for your thank you for your guys' work. It is really important and uh thankful that you do provide not only the evidence to support the arguments, but also, you know, the scripture and you're very balanced in presenting that. So uh, readers, you guys will pick up go pick up the books. These three books, uh, you'll be helped and encouraged, and it'll have a better understanding of of everything and more that we haven't even talked about in, in even greater detail about things that we have. So thank you guys for your for your time and ministry. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Dave. Great to be with you. Yeah. Great to be with you guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.